0: Beloved, open up your Bibles tonight to Isaiah chapter 49, and um, let me just give you a little introduction, you know, as we're as we're going to look at this text, so we kind of have an idea of what we're looking at. With this chapter, we're starting in a brand new section in Isaiah, okay? So, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the, the tail end of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters are kind of organized into um, three nine-chapter divisions, okay? And so, this one begins the second of the three nine-chapter divisions that that close out this latter part of Isaiah's prophecy. And so the last nine chapters, the, the nine previous chapters that we've been looking at, have really focused primarily on the physical redemption and the rescue of the exiles from Babylon, right? Um, we've been focusing on you know God's plan to do that, how he was going to do it, the servant that he was going to use, which is Cyrus, you know, a pagan king, all that stuff. But now beginning in chapter 49, there's a distinct change in focus, okay? There's a distinct change in... Um, You know, what the, what the heart of the, the message is about. And it shifts from the physical captivity of the Jewish exiles to now the moral and the spiritual captivity of Israel and the whole world. Okay. So remember, I want you to remember this, that in, in chapters, um, 40 through, through 48, God had made the promise that He would demonstrate to the world, right, through His um, redemption, through His rescue of the Jewish exiles, that, that He alone is the Holy One, that He's the Redeemer, that He is the Savior, right, the Holy Savior. He's the only one, right? The question, though, that comes is, how exactly is that going to take place? How is God actually going to reveal Himself as Redeemer and Savior and Rescuer of the nation in more than just a physical sense, right? Like, how is this blind and deaf and rebellious nation going to be any different just because Cyrus sends them back to Jerusalem, right? Like we talked about last week, a change of address doesn't equal a change of heart, right? A change of physical address doesn't indicate a change of spiritual condition, right? So, so how is that going to take place? Well, the answer is this. God's going to put forth His servant, the ideal Israel, Who will give himself to be for and to Israel, what Israel could never be in itself. God's mighty arm is about to be revealed in this servant that he's chosen before the foundation of the world. And and his arm is going to be revealed not through physical redemption, but through spiritual salvation. Okay. And so. Before you even look at it, I want to kind of explain to you what these next nine chapters are going to look like. These next nine chapters are structured in three parts, okay? Let me give them to you really quickly. You've got chapter 49 and verse 1 through chapter 52 and verse 12, okay? 49 verse 1 to chapter 52 verse 12. Then the second section is chapter 52 verse 13 through chapter 53 verse 12. And then the last last, um, section is chapter 54 verse 1 through... The fullness of chapter 57 okay and here's what we're going to see the first section is going to be marked by an increasing note of like anticipation expectation um an increased sort of uh just expectation really like but when i say expectation not just like Oh, I'm expecting to go to the mall this Saturday, but like an earnest expectation, something that grips your heart, right? This expectation of a possibility of a, of a restored relationship between, you know, the people and their God. Okay. And it's going to be depicted more clear, more and more clearly as we go. And that's all going to come to a climax at the very tail end of this section in in, in chapter 52, verses 7 through 12, where, and I'm not going to read it all right now, but where it declares that, that God has won the victory for his people. Okay. But how does he do that? How is he going to accomplish the victory for his people? And that's explained in the second section. Okay. The great atonement passage of chapter 52, verse 13 to chapter 53 and verse 12, right? In the person of the servant, in the person of the Messiah, God will defeat sin, make fellowship possible between a holy God and sinful men and women. And then in the last section, right, the people will be invited to participate and lay hold of this salvation that's already been achieved, to incline their ear, right, and come to the Lord, to seek Him while He may be found, to hear so their souls can live before the final statement that we have in in chapter 57, verse 21, that parallels... Isaiah 48 and verse 22, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So this first section, okay, this first section that we're looking at tonight, that we're starting tonight, looks forward with anticipation to redemption. The third section unfolds an invitation to receive it. And in the second section is described the substitutionary death of God's servant for Israel and for the nations of the world. Okay. So this is really, this is a remarkable text. And to be honest with you, I'm so glad we've finally gotten to Isaiah 49. Not that the rest of Isaiah hasn't been awesome. It has. But I really love that we're in Isaiah 49 and we're making, we're starting the home stretch toward the end. Because man, from here on out, the, the depictions of, of, of the, the servant of the Lord and the future glory of the people of God and everything. It's so incredible, right? So let's just read tonight. I want us to look at verses 1 through 7. So open your Bibles, Isaiah 49. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into this text tonight. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the holy one of Israel who has chosen you. Wow. Let's pray together. Hmm. Oh, what an awesome text how remarkable it is to hear these prophetic words um, as coming from the, Lord, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, describing the mission and the calling that you've given to Him. And Lord, as we look at this text tonight, I pray that our hearts would be moved by Your Word. I pray that our hearts and our souls would be moved by Your Word. That, Lord God, You would make Your Word alive in our midst that you would make our hearts to be receptive and um, just desirous to receive it, that, Lord God, as we look at this text and we consider what it speaks to us about the Lord Jesus Christ, that, Father, our hearts would be inflamed with awe and amazement, that our hearts would be stoked to a deeper love, that we would be moved to, uh, Father, a more solid faith. I pray that these words would be remarkable to us, that, Father, as we read them, we'd feast upon them, we'd meditate upon them, that as we hear them tonight when we leave, that, Lord God, these words would not leave our conscious thinking, but that we would really think about the wonder and the majesty that these words hold. Father, you are a great and awesome God, and you are beyond finding out. But I am grateful, Lord God, that you have given to us in your word everything that is needful for us, Father, to know and to be saved. To know and to be sanctified. To know Lord God and to look forward with hope to the day of glory. I just praise you for this time tonight that we have together. I pray, Father, that you would make it profitable for each for every one of us here. I pray that you would, Father, lead me and guide me by your Holy Spirit. That I would speak your words faithfully and accurately. That I would teach this text right. And I pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit you would give to each one of us a receptive heart. So thank you, Lord God, for just your Continuing favor, um, you're shepherding goodness towards your people. We love you, Lord God. We love you and we delight in you, but we only love you because you loved us first. And to, and to that, Lord God, we say yes and amen. May you be glorified as we study your word together tonight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is kind of a cool thing. You know, we're getting into the second servant song, right? And in the first servant song that we looked, in Isaiah 42, looked at it in Isaiah 42, right? That was the, the beginning of the description of the servant of the Lord, a concentrated description of the servant of the Lord. And in that one, you remember when I read it at the very beginning, right? Like it was not a, a first person account. OK, it was not the servant of the Lord speaking. It was somebody else speaking about that servant. But tonight, this one that we look at the second servant song, it's the servant himself who's speaking. OK, it is the servant himself who is speaking Hear the servant of the Lord The Messiah takes center stage and He gives us His testimony to His calling. He gives us a prophetic overview of the ministry with which He has been instructed. Now, I want to make sure we understand this, okay? These are not like, these are not verbatim words of the Lord Jesus Christ, for instance, that He spoke in His incarnation, okay? There are many times when He quoted from Isaiah, but but this isn't one of them, okay? So, these aren't verbatim words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, what they are is this. They are a Prophetic description of the aspects of his character and his ministry as the redeemer and the deliverer of the people of God. Not just the elect Jews, right? But but the elect from the Gentile nations as well. So what we've got here is the servant's testimony to himself, the servant's testimony to his calling and everything that God gave to him to do, and and you know, all of that. And so I want us to begin, I want us to, I mean, look at this text under under three headings, okay? And we'll start, first of all, with the servant's calling in verses 1 through 3, okay? Servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his calling by the Lord in verses 1 through 3, and he says these words. Look at him again. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, there are some significant things that I want us to see. A lot of them, actually, from just these first three verses. Okay. first thing I want you to notice is this. I want you to notice that his word goes out to all the earth, right? So the people that are receiving this message is not just the exiles, you know, the the exiles in Babylon or even the the returned exiles. It's everybody in the whole world. It's the coastlands. It's the people from afar. And he's pointing them to the fact that this ministry that he's about to perform and what he's going to describe here is not to be restricted to the Jews, okay? It's not just for the Jews. This is a worldwide ministry that he is going to accomplish, okay? And then the second thing is this. Notice, too, the use of the phrase, listen to me. Listen to me, right? To this point, Isaiah has used this phrase exclusively concerning Yahweh, right? It's Yahweh who says, listen to me. It's Yahweh who says, you know, hear my words. It's Yahweh who says that, okay? That's the one. So how can this servant then address the world in this same manner? How can he say to the entire world, listen to me? Well, here's the hint. Here's the hint. His demand for a worldwide hearing lies in the fact that this servant is more than a mere man. And we're going to see that develop, obviously. But from the very beginning, we're not to miss that there's a unique relationship between Yahweh and this servant In that they both have the right and the power and the authority to command the world. To command the attention and the obedience of the entire world, right? Second, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice how he describes his calling as being from the womb, right? As being from the womb. We're familiar with that with John the Baptist. We're familiar with that with Jeremiah, right? But... In this case, the idea is that from the very beginning of his human existence, okay, even before that we know, his calling was fully established, right? And his name was assigned to him before he was even born. You remember that? Do you remember how the angel, you know, under the direction of the Lord came to Joseph, right? Joseph's thinking about getting rid of Mary when she's pregnant. Like, I'm going to just put her away. I'll do it quietly because I'm a righteous man and all, but... I'm not staying married to a woman who's pregnant and not by me. Right. And you remember the angel comes to him in the dream and says, now take Mary as your wife. And then he commands him. You shall call his name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right. Right. From this very womb. He's been assigned a name. Joseph didn't come up with that. Mary didn't come up with that. The angel didn't come up with that. He's just a messenger. God gave him that name. But there's more to this idea of the servant receiving an assigned name that we'll see in just a moment. Okay? Third thing I want us to see is this. The servant's self-description obviously points to his office, to, to a prophetic office. Okay? To an office as a prophet. Now we are familiar with, the, at least we should be, the threefold office of the Lord Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Right? He's our prophet, he's our priest, and our, he's our king. Back in the first servant song, in Isaiah 42, the emphasis there was more on his kingship, right? The emphasis there was on more on his kingship with the, with the references to justice and to law, right? Coming to the world. In Isaiah 53, the focus will be on his, his office as priest, right? Who offers the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world, right? Himself. But here, the focus is on him as prophet. And the focus is on his words, right? God makes his mouth like a sharp sword, right? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In other words, here's the deal. He will accomplish God's will not by military force, right? That was Cyrus's job. He's not going to comp- he's not going to, you know, to accomplish the, the God's will by military force. He's going to do it by the revelation of his word. By speaking his word, by speaking the word of the living God with power and authority, unlike anyone who has ever spoken in history, right? He speaks with, he speaks the word of the living God, you know, with power, the word that in the words of the writer of Hebrews is living and active, sharper than a two edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of his heart right and so as a result no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account then moreover in his person he says the lord has prepared him like a polished arrow right now, here was the deal with arrows, you know, back in that day. You didn't just go to Dick's and buy a bunch of arrows if you were an archer back in, you know, back in these days, back in Isaiah's day. In fact, you had to make them yourself, right? And in order to make them effective, you would have to polish them. And the idea of polishing them was to, to, to take some kind of sanding, you know, some kind of sanding substance and to rub the, the, the shaft of the arrow down repeatedly until you removed every kind of bump, every kind of, like, scratch, every kind of anything until you made it, like, Man, like polished, you know, just perfect in every way. And the idea here is this, is that as a polished arrow, as this, as this, you know, perfect arrow, it will fly straight and true and it'll hit the target at which it aims. In other words, he's not going to fail in what he does. The mission that he's going to be given is not one that that he's going to, he's not going to be off the mark, okay? He's going to hit the target. And moreover, He's been prepared and he's been hidden away, he says, twice actually, to be revealed at the right time in history. That's the idea. The picture is that God has prepared and held him in reserve to be revealed and employed at the proper time. Just like Paul testified to the Galatians, right? You remember when he said, but when the fullness of time had come, what? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, right? Right? And then last, the servant describes how God has given him this name, Israel. Right? He's given him the name of Israel. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Oh, what's the deal there? There is, there's already an Israel right now, isn't there? Isn't there? Yeah. There's an entire nation of people that go by the name Israel. Right? So what's the deal here? Well, the deal is this. The Lord is saying, you, my servant, you will be the ideal Israel. The Israel that Israel never was. You're going to be the ideal Israel in contrast to the nation that had made itself unfit to bear the name. And so what we understand here is that there are two Israels that are in view in this text. One, the individual who has a special task of bringing the other, the nation, back to the Lord, right? Think about it like this. The nation of Israel had utterly failed in its responsibility, hadn't it? Their responsibility was to do what? Magnify the glory of the Lord before the nations and bring them to God. Did they do that? No. They were horrific at it, actually. They were really bad at that job. And so how could a nation that couldn't find its own way to God, a blind, a deaf, a rebellious nation, how could they ever show anybody else the way? Right? The blind leading the blind, quite literally. How could they do that? See, that's the dilemma that the servant came to solve. That's the dilemma that the servant comes to solve. He will be for Israel and for the world what Israel could never be because he's going to embody all that the nation of Israel was called to be and wasn't. He will be fully pleasing to to God in heaven. He will absolutely fulfill his will, you know, without failure. He will be in every way the ideal Israel that Israel never was. And that was part of the plan all along. And so, therefore, this one who's truly, he's the one, the servant, who is truly and perfectly worthy to be worthy of the name my servant. Because he tells us here that he is the one through whom God will be glorified. Or literally, here's what it literally says, through whom God will display his beauty. Through whom God will display his beauty. When we think of beauty, what do we usually think of? Wrath and judgment? Is that at the top of our list? No, of course not. When we think of the beauty of God, what do we think about? His mercy. His mercy, His grace. His wisdom, Right? His perfect word. His righteousness. He's going to display it all. Through him, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature will shine forth. God's going to reveal himself through the servant. And and, and in fact, that servant's particularly called for that task. He's particularly equipped for that task. And he's been particularly kept for that task. It's It's not by chance that the servant finds himself in this role. It's part of the plan all along. He's been called to this. In fact, that word called is different from the one that we usually see describing prophets. The word call here means a sovereign appointment, a sovereign choice to a special status and function. That's what it means here when it says that he's called, right? He's to be the shining light of God's glory. Now, the problem is what? What's the problem with him shining forth as the light of God's glory? Well, the problem there is this. It's us. It's that the light has come into the world. And what? People love the darkness, darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. evil. And so that leads us to verse 4, right? That leads us to verse 4 in the servant's trials. Look at this. Read verse 4 with me again. He said, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Now, how are we to understand this? Because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ never said anything like this. And we know that he set his face like a flint to go and to do the will of the Father. So how do we understand this? Well, what we've got here, beloved, is a poetic expression of the apparent weakness and failure of his mission from a human perspective. What we've got here is is a description of or a a shorthand for the way that he was rejected and opposed at every turn. Right. We read in in, at the beginning of verse seven in this text. We read the whole thing that he was deeply despised, abhorred by the nation and the servant of rulers. Right. The king of the universe was rejected by the very people that he made. Right. Rejected by his own kinsmen. And he humbled himself under the sinful governing authorities of this earth. You remember when he stood before Pilate. You remember that classic, classic moment when Pilate's like, don't you know that I can release you? Right? And Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Right? He subordinated himself to these, these governing you know, authorities in the earth. At the end of his life, think about it. He had perhaps 500 or so followers And one of his 12 disciples was a traitor. Throughout the Gospels, he faces rejection, unbelief, prejudice, misunderstanding. He's grieved by his disciples' failure to understand by their little faith. Oh, ye of little faith, right? And and he predicted their falling away at his crucifixion, which, by the way, they fulfilled, right? By every worldly standard and by the perspective of, you know, fallen man The servant's life, Christ's life had been futile. He died in weakness on a cross, right? But praise God, human perception is not the measure of truth, right? Human perception is not the measure of truth. Now, I know we live in an age when people think it is, right? People think their perception is truth. And the way you find that out is when you say something in a plain spoken way to somebody and and they respond as if they heard nothing that you just said. Right? And then you repeat yourself again. And their response is, "Well, I perceive you to be saying, you know, you said A and they're like, "I perceive you to be saying Z." And their perception's reality. Human perception is not reality. Human perception is not the measure of truth. And Christ knew that. The servant knows that. That statement, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God, it points to the truth that his Lord and God, the one who called him to this mission, he was the one who would make the final determination as to its value and success. He was. It's God, the God who called him, the one who equipped him, the one who, u- who was using him, who will make the final determination concerning the servant's work. God, not the world, will make the final decision concerning the worth of the servant's work, right? And then, in verses five through seven, the servant the Lord Jesus, describes the divine verdict, right? Let's just read the whole thing, and then we'll, then we'll look more intently at it. Look what he says., man, these are some great verses. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is awesome. The verdict of the Lord is this. Oh, the servant will definitely bring Jacob back to him and he will definitely gather From Israel, those whom the Lord had preserved for salvation. That's the idea here, right? But not only is he to raise up the tribes of Jacob, he's going to also be God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Jacob and Israel couldn't restore herself to a right relationship with the Lord any more than they could deliver themselves from Babylon. Cyrus had to restore Israel to Judah, and the servant was needed to restore Jacob to the Lord God. But he's also needed to bring salvation to the nations. In fact, listen to the confident assertion by the the servant. He says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says with absolute confidence, right? God is well pleased with me and I am highly honored in the eyes of the Lord. That means I'm weighty. I am noble. I have a rich dignity in the eyes of the Lord. And moreover, he is possessed of unfailing unmitigated strength in Him. In Him. Again, we see this unique relationship between the servant and the Lord. And it's one that Jesus talks about. Jesus said to the crowds, for instance, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord But only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise. Or I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said to the Pharisees, when you've lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And then he says to his disciples, remember John 14? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. The servant will do everything that he does in the strength of the Lord. Right? And there's a mystery here, right? There is a mystery to the incarnation. And lots of times we'll kind of swing on one side of, the, you know, of it to another. Like we'll say, well, he's, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. But in practice, if we're not careful, we usually lean one way or the other. You know, we'll lean towards the fully God thing because we don't want to have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus actually did grow in wisdom and stature before people or we'll swing all the way on the the side of, you know, Jesus, you know, as 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 human because, you know, we 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 somehow, you know, not us, but some theologians will want to try to find some kind of fallibility in Christ. No. He's 100% man, he's 100% God. And in his 100% unique, you know, humanity, he was 100% dependent upon Almighty God. In fact, he do everything to perfection. So much so that the servant describes the Lord's astounding statement that the responsibility of restoring to Israel of restoring Israel to himself is not a large enough, not a glorious enough task for him. It's not enough to give him to do. Right? That to me is just awesome. That is such a great thought. Listen, I'll listen to it again. It is too light a thing. That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The, The servant is of such a nature, such a calling, such preparation that he's got to be given a greater task that fits him, right? The salvation of the elect from every nation, right? Simply saving the elect from the Jewish nation. That's no small thing. As great as that is, that's just not enough. That's just not enough. It's not enough to display his infinite worth and majesty. It's not enough to honor his perfection. It's not enough to to, to magnify the, the the excellencies of his person. It's just not enough. He will be a light to the nations. To bring them out of spiritual darkness and blindness, God says that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Literally, that phrase should be rendered. I will make you as a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. What's the difference? The difference is this. The servant's not merely to be the means of God's salvation coming to the world. He is that salvation. That's the whole point, right? Rightly we say, right? Rightly do we say, Therefore, you know, there's there's salvation in in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. There's not Jesus Christ, our Lord, the cornerstone, right? Rightly, we say the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Psalm 118, verse 14, Christ alone, the servant of the Lord is that salvation. And ultimately. This servant who is despised. And abhorred by the nation of Israel, who was subject to to human governing authorities, even unto death. Ultimately, he will be exalted above all who are considered great in this world. Kings will be astonished at him and will stand up from their thrones in awed respect. Make sure you understand that. When a king would stand up, a king would never stand up from his throne. Whenever anybody came in before a king, he never moved. You know why? Because he was the greatest one in the room. He never moved from his throne for anybody because there was no one considered greater than him until the coming of the servant. Princes will prostrate themselves before the true king, right? But what is it that accounts for this dramatic change in the end? What is it that turns everything on its head, right? Well, it's the faithfulness of the Holy One of Israel the one who has called and chosen his servant. It's because the Holy One of Israel has chosen his servant and the servant has fulfilled his mission and brought glory to the name of God that he will be exalted above all powers and authorities anywhere in this world. In light of that truth, think about then this testimony of Paul in Philippians 2, right? When he testifies of Christ. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a great song. What a great song. Reading this song reminds me or makes me think of a few things. And then I want to hear from you. I want to hear what what this stirs in your soul, but there's a few things I was thinking about, you know, when I was going through this text and it, I was thinking, first of all, how it points to the sovereign purpose of the Lord and his mastery over history. You know, I, I, that always strikes me, right? And what strikes me is that the faltering and the failure of Israel, it didn't catch God off guard. Like when when Israel, you know, went full blown into idolatry and they were conquered by the Assyrians. And then when Judah did the same and the Babylonians, you know, brought them into captivity. Like that didn't catch God off guard at all. All along, all along. He had prepared the perfect servant, the ideal Israel, right? To do what he did for those who could not do what they needed to do, right? Right? In other words, I guess what I'm getting at is what, what strikes me whenever I'm reading, I mean, all the Scripture, obviously, but, but really Isaiah is that there's just not a plan B. Like, people that try to make it sound like, well, God, you know, He, he took a good shot there with Israel, but, you know, and then Judah looked, looked promising at the beginning, but, you know, and then he had to come up with something on the fly. And so he did. You just don't get that from the Scripture. That's nowhere in the Word of God. It's not like God God didn't respond God's not a responder. He's an initiator. Right? That's the first thing. Second thing is what strikes me and I alluded to it earlier, man. The mystery of the incarnation. Man, I, you know, I study the incarnation not just like at Christmas time but like, you know, I'll be reading through, you know, systematic theologies and stuff like that or whatever. And the more that I think that I understand the incarnation, the more I realize what a mystery that is. How in, in the world, how is it possible that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God takes to himself human flesh and becomes a man and thereby elevates man from his degraded position because of our own sin, ultimately to glory? You know, I, a servant yet sovereign... If you can figure that one out, please let me know. Send me an email. You know, Is, you know what it's like? It's like you ever had one of those moments sometimes when you, when you feel like you've got perfect clarity about everything? Like just for just a moment, it's like you understand the universe. You know what I mean? And then a split second later, you know, it's, it's like, what did I just think I thought? You know, you can't even remember any of it. I mean, I can remember having those moments. Maybe you've never had them. I, I think all of us at one point or another has has a moment where we just feel like we have this incredible insight. I, I just, I'm, I'm, st- I'm over, over, like overwhelmed with the mystery of the incarnation. I'm still, I still am amazed at it. You know, however many years after I've been a believer. Then I think the next thing is just the helplessness and the hopelessness of redemption apart from God's servant. Right? Yeah, I, we still are, you know, in our world. Our, well even though we're saved, lots of times we still, you know, we evaluate the, the, the how, if our salvation took by a lot of wrong methods, you know, by, you know, how perfectly I have done this or how perfectly I have done that and, and all of that. And you, And you read Isaiah and you realize just as, you know, Paul describes in Romans like salvation cannot be by works. It just cannot be. We are by nature idolaters. We're born that way, right? Calvin said that the heart is what? A factory of idols. Is that not true? I mean, the, the, the thing for us is, is as soon as one of those idols is produced, we need to grab it, snap it in half, and throw it in the, you know, throw it in the dustbin. But there's no salvation apart from God's servant. And, and the other thing is that His word really is life for those who believe. And that's why our hearts need to be soft and receptive to His Word at all times. Like, it's not, it's not that you just need to have a soft heart at the moment that you're saved, you know, and then it can start scaling over and becoming calloused again, you know. That's the problem with whole decisionism kind of Christianity, right? But that we've got to have a heart that is soft and receptive to His Word at all times, right? And then the last thing, and then I'll open up to you all is, the more I'm studying Isaiah, and especially in conjunction with Romans and, of course, the Gospels, the more I recognize the perfect unity of the Old and the New Testaments. There's just a perfect unit, unity there, and that's why Christ could rightly say to His disciples, you know, on the Emmaus road, "Oh, foolish ones." And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Perfect unity between the Old and the New Testaments. Perfect, huh? And the hearts burned inside them. Yes. Your thoughts? Yes, Sam Schaefer. So I
1: thought uh, when we're looking at the first part and you see how Jesus has uh, been named in the yeah. womb and then from his
2: mouth is a sharp sword, Revelation 19.
0: Yeah, you think of that right, right away, don't you? I
2: mean, but, you know, somebody could probably write a paper on, on it, but I think the difference is... Uh, well, the grace of the first coming and the second coming could
0: <coughs> have easily, that's what we deserved. Like right. Could have been the first coming. that? Yeah. Yep. That could have been it. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. The grace involved there and mercy. Mm. Yep. I agree. Anybody else? Let's
1: about, you know, verse four. It seems to, me, like you point out, suddenly change tone. Yeah. And uh, it always reminds me of my God, my
0: God. Lord. Why have you forsaken me? I'm yeah.
1: And I was thinking of Psalm 69, just is full of that kind of thing. And there's one particular verse in Psalm 69, 20 which has always gotten me. He's talking about the shame and so forth, all of that that's been put on him. And then verse 20 he says, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And that, to me, is exactly what's happening in verse 4. Yeah. It's the the internal feelings of christ on the cross
0: it's being the yeah I, and i think somewhat too in his ministry like you know he cries out how long how long you know like remember when he does that and um how i would have gathered you but you refused you know when he's looking over jerusalem and weeping like yeah yeah it's not, I it's hard because you know you look at that and, and especially when we look at like isaiah 42 and and the Lord says of him, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth. Right. So you're trying to weigh that with, you know, it's hard, you know, but that's exactly where we got to understand the, the profound humanity of Jesus as well. Like there is an emotional component to that that we we can't possibly understand. Like we can't enter into that. We try. But, you know, it's like
1: the theological side of it the errors tend to fall in those two
0: directions as I said the mess comes from when we lean heavy to the humanity side oh yeah and, uh, and so to protect ourselves we lean, we lean just a little bit you know to the divinity side but you can you can almost remove the emotion of Christ yeah absolutely anybody else alright well then let's pray Less you pray for us bro
2: thank you for this word tonight. Father, I thank you for the truth that the representative. I thank you for the truth that you speak to us in mercy. You speak to us in mercy. Yeah. I, speak, I, I thank you for the gift of your servant, our Savior. Your son. I thank you for the salvation that it procured for us that brought us from death to life. And Father, I thank you for the anticipation of the return of our Savior, mm-hmm. an the establishment of his kingdom, and his rule over all creation. Father, may we ever look forward to that day. But Father, until that day comes, may we seek to be doing just what we have done tonight, worshiping you. Learning your words, having it shape and mold our thoughts and our hearts, grow in our affections towards you, and seek to be obedient to your commands. Father, I thank you for tonight, for the gift of grace that it is, and I pray these things in Christ's name.
1: Amen. Amen.